Welcome everyone to the Dragonfly Dojo. Uh, for this evening's meditation, uh, we're going to talk about the way of the Sangha. And what does that mean and why is it important? One of the things you might have noted that within the Buddhist tradition, we have kind of a trinity. In fact, I'm going to talk about that in another Dharma talk or homily. But we have a Buddhist trinity. Uh, we have lots of them, actually. Uh, we have the three principles of oneness. We have the three tenets. You know, we've got lots of them. Uh, but one one of the primary trinities we have is the Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha. And we think, you know, we say that, I take refuge in the Buddha, the Dharma, the Sangha, the three treasures, we call them, right? But I don't think a lot of people really think about that third treasure. They kind of take it for granted. Um, and I would say, in my experience, as a teacher, a, an ordained minister, a priest who has overseen a temple for most of his adult life, um, it's the thing that people don't realize until they really need it. And they often take it for granted. And again, I'm not offering and throwing this out as a, a gripe or a criticism, but there's... There's a real sense that uh, this will just exist somehow and that we don't have to care for it. We don't have to help, you know, take care of it, both in our commitment to sort of supporting it through dana and gifts of donation, supporting it through participation. And we kind of take it for granted, but the reality is it's the Sangha that is really the manifestation of the Buddha in this world. I mean, we, each of us are as individuals, but as the Sangha, we are the embodiment of, you know, the, the, the mythic Maitreya, the, the Buddha who is always coming, you know, that is, uh, embodied in Hote, the big joyous Buddha. But it's 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 not something that just will be. And it's interesting if you look over the history of the last three millennia of Buddhism, one of the things you'll find is that if the movement did not have an organized Sangha and did not have an order of the ordained, they disappeared. They eventually died out. And so, you know, as the leader and founder of a community, my biggest uh, sort of, not concern, but I guess my biggest wish is to know that if I would pass into nirvana tomorrow, that everything that we have built and everything that we have done and the thousands of lives that we have touched and will continue to help in the future that that will go on. And so the Sangha is so important. If it were not for the Sangha, we would not be here. We would, if you have benefited from these teachings, if you have practiced with us, if you have benefited, you would not be here. You would not be experiencing the freedom and the joy in your life you have right now if it was not for the Sangha. 
So we owe a debt of gratitude to the Sangha. And we have a commitment to maintaining it. Now, the Sangha through the centuries has always changed because it's always seeking to present the teachings in the most skillful manner. You know, and what works for one generation might not work for another generation. And certainly, even if we go back to the time of Shakyamuni, I mean, Shakyamuni never saw an airplane, Shakyamuni never used an iPad. You know, there was technology that exists today that did not exist before, and it, it has a primary powerful impact on our existence, and it changes the way we see the world, and it also affects the way we communicate. So every generation of Buddhist communities have tried to make the teachings relevant and also skillful so that they communicated best. And of course, that's what we tried to do here in the Dragonfly Sangha. Now, what's interesting is um, also that I think that every Sangha or every teacher that leads a Sangha or the teachers who follow that teacher, I think it's really important that every teacher brings something new out of the past. That good teachers bring something new out of the past. In other words, they don't just sort of regurgitate the past or turn the past into some sort of idol, but rather they reimagine the past. Because what you have sometimes in spiritual communities or religious institutions, whatever language you prefer or defer, I'm okay with both of them. Usually what you have is people either turn the past into something that they now have to sort of keep, you know, every jot and tittle of everything exactly the same way, or, you know, somehow you've committed some heinous sin against the ancestors, or somehow you default the present. And so you have that on one side, and on the other side you have Sometimes people want to reject the past or pretend the past didn't really exist. They want to whitewash the past. They want to remove the past. And they judge the past by the present. They look backward and say, well, how come you didn't do things the way we do them now? Because we're so enlightened and we're so progressive. How could you possibly have had those views? And I, and I think that's one of the things that we're, I'm going to talk about at the retreat is like, imagine your ancestors 100 years from now and how they're going to look at you. And so that's the thing you find sometimes is that communities or teachers will look at the past as a kind of like sacred cow or they'll look at the past as something, oh, my God, how could they have done that? It's not my way. I try to follow a middle way, and I mean that sincerely. And what I try to do is not look at the past as some portal to justification, and nor do I look at the past as something I have to reject. For me, what the past teaches me 
is something important, and I, I need to reimagine it for the contemporary community. I need to find a way to take those classic ideas and make them relevant now. That to me is the middle way in this regard. And when we do that, I think we do two things. One, we do what I said before, that I think a good teacher does, is bring something new out of the past. But we also honor the past. And we honor the past as an imperfect, fluctuating, transitory, and contingent existence. And yet in the midst of all that, there was great wisdom. There was great compassion. And sometimes one generation plants the seeds and another generation waters it and then and yet another generation reaps it. This is wisdom. This is what we know is true. We know it is true in an individual's life. We know it's true in a society's life. Heaven help us if we can't change. Heaven help us if we're judged by the ignorances of the past. So, what do we know about the Sangha as it's been talked about historically? Well, we know two things. Um, that the primitive, and this is a term that's used in academia a lot, the primitive community of, after the passing of Shakyamuni Buddha, it kind of manifested in um, a couple different ways. And um, the first way that it was manifested was by focusing on the spiritual technology, mindfulness, meditation, the precepts, and, and the ideal was the practitioner, the practitioner seeking his or her own freedom uh, from suffering. And that that awakening of that individual, this is what we might call the Old Testament. Now, um, I was raised in the United States, very grateful. And so I was raised in the Judeo-Christian uh, traditions. And so a lot of my reference points um, will come from there, and particularly a more Protestant, I guess, approach, you might say. So when I'm, when I'm looking at the Sangha and how it sort of unfolded historically and what we know about the primitive community, the truth is the more scholarship goes, the more we realize that the classic ways that the Sangha was talked about historically isn't probably very accurate, that probably from the very beginnings of those who, the communities that flowed out of uh, Shakyamuni's life and after his passing, they probably were different because they took different aspects of the teachings and kind of highlighted those. One of the things we know that's fascinating is that the way you could tell the different orders from each other was the different color of robes they wore, <laughs> which I always thought was kind of cool. But they and I'm, and they all seem to have the same core teachings that were you know present, but they had different ways of expressing. 
and different emphasis that they would they would make, which I think is cool. Um, and so real history seems to show us that the classical version probably isn't completely accurate, but I'm going to work from that tonight. And that classical version is the one that I just sort of expressed to you, which is what I call the Old Testimony. I was going to say Old Testament, but it's not Old Testament. It's the Old Testimony. And the Old Testimony was focused on a character called the, the Ara, the, the, the individual who was seeking awakening and freedom from their suffering. And, and, and the idea of community there lent itself to those who were kind of solitary or living in sort of monastic communities, things like that. And then there is the uh, focus on spiritual symbols. So I think that early community was primarily focused on spiritual technology. Now, again, you can find everything in the old testimony that you find really in the new testimony. It's just expressed differently. But classically, they've they've talked about these two groups differently. And so that's why I'm using that framework. But the old testimony was really focused on the individual's needs and the, the, the individual approach to being awake. The new testimony was focused on the spiritual symbolism. So things like liturgy, cosmic doctrines, the ideal of the practitioner was now the ideal of the practitioner who was devoted to sharing with others. Now, it's not that the Old Testimony didn't do that too, but the way of the Bodhisattva, the one who in his or her life gives it in service to others and sees our awakening not as something that happens in a solitary setting, but as something that is actually, you know, one for all and all for one. And out of the one, the many. So it, it, it had a different emphasis. So we have the Old Testimony, which seems to focus on the individual and the spiritual technology. And we have the New Testimony, which seems to focus more on the symbolism and the cosmic sort of drama. So how have we done it? Well, in our community, the Dragonfly Sangha, we have tried to reimagine those things and those schools, if you will. And we reimagine the doctrines and the symbols. And this reimagining of the doctrines and the symbols, such as my reimagining of the three seals, or the three marks of existence, as the three principles of oneness. My teacher, Bernie Glassman, who reimagined the three so-called pure precepts, or clarifying precepts, as the three tenets. You know, this is a way of uh, seeing things in a way that makes sense to us now. So when I want to talk about the Buddha, you know, which in traditional language might be talked about uh, the ground of being as Amida, right? I'm going to refer to Amida as the life of the universe itself. Or the actions of compassion that emerge out of the universe and classical language is called Kaseon. So we're finding, and, and, and the destiny of all beings as Buddha, we're talking about that 
in terms that can make sense to people living today and using the knowledge base we have. And so that's how we have reimagined that. And then secondly, we're transliterating and emphasizing engagement therapeutically. One of the big things that I wanted to do is bring back what I believe was the primitive or inherent sense of therapeutic or psychotherapeutic aspects of the Dharma. So that that was front and center. So it was really about engaging our lives and not so much about doctrines or symbols, but rather the doctrines and symbols that were there to serve in a sort of harmonious matrimony, the liberation of beings, but that it would be the therapeutic aspect that I would reimagine so that we could use it with folks whether they had any interest or knowledge in Buddhism or they just were suffering and wanted to be free. So I think it also brought back that, that universal aspect. That was an important, very important thing for me. And thirdly, we um, might call that Dharma. And thirdly, uh, the integration through the liturgical, clerical, and congregational models that we could reflect contemporary concerns and express things in a way that would be meaningful now. And and that's the other thing. I mean, the reason I wear robes and we have, you know, these beautiful cases and we do liturgy uh, and, and we, we, we express things through this liturgical cycle is because we recognize that it is a way to integrate ourselves into community. And as I was saying last week, when I talked about, um, you know, why the Sangha is so important. Um, where I was talking about Shakyamuni and we kind of got into the, some of the language around Sangha. Um, it's, it's that sort of ritual in common that we have that kind of unites us. And that's something that's very powerful about liturgy that a lot of people don't realize is that um, sometimes I'm called to ask or asked to help communities heal whether it's a family or it's a community of some sort. And one of the things that I've found is that liturgy uh, can be a way of healing, where even if every individual coming to the liturgy might have certain different ideas about certain things, we have a common language. And that's why you know I put together the Book of Common Meditation, so that we would have a common language and a common way to observe together, to be together, share together, to experience oneness and community. And so, and then we created an order for clergy because I think it's really vital to have people trained in these new imaginings so they can go on and continue. So that's the way of Sangha. And uh, it'll be interesting to see how Sanghas are talked about in the future. My own opinion is, is that over over time, we will not really break them down into the classical categories of Nikaya, Mahayana, Vajrayana, Navya. That that instead, what we've adopted in our seminary is to use um, classic sort of determinations for periods. So we have what we call Paleo Buddhism, Meso Buddhism, Neo Buddhism, and so it allows us to break things down by the period of time rather than talking about specific schools.
schools or groups. So my hope is that that idea and concept will carry on. So I hope that was useful to everyone.